Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jericho to, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell upon robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I'm going to pray for us. Dear God, I just pray over these words just read and the words that are about to be taught by Daniel. I just pray that your truth scream out loud to us today. God, I pray that you hide Daniel behind your words. I pray that you are glorified in what we hear and then what we go and do today. God, I pray for soft hearts, um, that we hear the words that you want and need us to hear, and then we turn around and we act upon them. God, the gospel demands a response, and I pray today we listen for, with ears looking for how you are calling us to respond. God, I pray that you are glorified in what is spoken and what is then gone and done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, all right. Good morning, Fauna Church. I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here, and I am thankful that you are here with me today. Robert Green is not here. Robert's preached the week before, senior pastor. Uh, he is in Nashville right now because the guy who preached two weeks before that, John Wood, our group's pastor, his mom passed away a few weeks ago and John officiated his mother's funeral yesterday. So if you're a friend of John, you know John, you got any contact for him, please reach out to him. I've done some family funerals, but not done the funeral of my mother. I can't imagine how difficult that was for him and how thankful he was that he had a robust faith to fall back on. So Robert went yesterday and attended that funeral. I was slated to preach today anyway, which is why I'm not in Omaha, Nebraska right now. Can't even tell you guys, the first service looked like this stadium yesterday. It was so much powder blue. And I'll move past this very quickly, just having a good moment here. Robert talks about Mississippi State so much, right? Like, can I not be allowed to talk about Ole Miss, even though I didn't go to school there? Uh, but I do, Robert and I were talking, want to extend a, a warm welcome this morning to our Omaha, Nebraska campus of Fondren Church, because there are lots of people up there right now. We've kind of got this plan going. He'll go one year and I'll go the next year. It's kind of what the schools are doing anyway, so we'll, we'll get that figured out sometime soon. But I am thankful that you're here with me today as we continue another week in this series where we are looking at parables. What are parables? They're teachings of Jesus, principally about salvation. They're salvation stories and about how to live following Jesus. So we picked up here in Luke 10, which Mariah read, grateful for that. 
the first eight-ish chapters of Luke, just so you know, are really answering the question, who is Jesus? And the rest of the chapters sort of answer the question, how do I follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? So we find that there, and here today we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to lie, when I got assigned this a couple of months ago, I thought, Good Samaritan, geez, because what I feel like we have to do, often in your own life, you got to do this, we need to unlearn some things before we can learn the right way. People would probably say that about my penmanship and maybe the way that I do math, that I learned how to do things poorly and now I have to relearn how to do some other things and that might be true for you in your relationship with the good Samaritan. One of the most misunderstood teachings of Jesus, I would say. It is very much a story that would imply a command for us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to do good particularly to those who are in need But if that's all it is, I would dare say that we have a low view of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That there's something deeper that Jesus would want to teach us in this parable. Our relationship to him and our relationship to one another. So that's how I want to spend our time together this morning. But the Good Samaritan, if you're like me, you grew up in a house where uh, random acts of kindness were encouraged. Maybe it's Mississippi. Maybe it's a hospitality state. Maybe it's a, a religious undertone throughout the life of our state. I don't really know what it is, but being kind is just kind of the name of the game here. And often it is ascribed, be a Good Samaritan. That person is a Good Samaritan. So you see someone who's walking an old lady across the street or carrying groceries out to the back of a car or visiting someone when they're sick. They're being the Good Samaritan, and it's appropriate, I think, in some regards, but there's some depth there that I just don't want us to miss. I knew I was preaching this passage a a couple of weeks ago, like I said, and earlier this week, I was in New York City. Uh, Carly, my wife, was attending a conference in New York City, so I went up with her trying to be a good work wife. I went along, and I had nothing to do in New York. I think I might have been the first person in history, perhaps the the only person in New York at that time who had absolutely no agenda. In a city that grinds and is full of so much ambition and so many things, I shot a couple of emails to people trying to hang out with them. Most pastors don't work on Friday, just so you guys know, and that's also true in New York. So I got a lot of people uh, that said really nice things to me back, but it just left me with basically nothing to do. So I decided to set out on my bold adventure together uh, today. I mean, sorry, I decided to set out on a bold adventure whenever I was in New York. And I discovered that ultimately what I did was live a white girl dream. I went to so many coffee shops in New York, in Manhattan, and I can't even imagine how many 13-year-old girls would have killed me with their bare hands to be living the life that I lived with no agenda, sitting at a table in New York, in Manhattan's 46th Street or something like that. And uh, I've got a book that I'm reading, a cold brew off to the side, and a peanut butter cookie. And I'm like, wow, this is literally what Instagram looks like, and I'm living it. But here's the thing. I I didn't really want to do that. I'm bad at sitting still. I'm much more bent to action and existentialism, but that's different. So I'm bent towards action. I said, I got to get up, and I got to do something. So as I started to kind of plot what my next moves were going to be through the city that day, I thought, hey, I'm preaching the Good Samaritan. Let me test this thing out. Let me do as many random acts of kindness today as I can. 
So it started with me helping a guy bring a Yeti cooler into the back of a kitchen in New York. He thought I was stealing it from him, so that was a little confusing at first. But once we got to the part that I was going to help him, so Yeti's got a long reach, man, good brand, like all the way up in New York. So I helped this guy, wheel it in, did several other things along the way to kind of consume my time as I was going about. I just didn't have anything to do, so I was unhurried, right? Maybe a good practice for some of us to be more unhurried. But I, I feel like maybe the culmination of that for me was that there was a woman who was going to her job and she was some kind of seamstress. She did some sewing and she had her sewing machine inside this rolling suitcase and was about to take it up several flights of stairs. I was, no joke, about three times her size. So I picked the thing up and I carried it up the stairs for her. But it was interesting because I just thought, let me take on this disposition today and see these random acts of kindness. Is this really what the Good Samaritan is about? And I'll tell you, it's yes and no. So let's set the table for the parable. We see Jesus who's approached by a lawyer. Now this isn't like some of you experts in civil or criminal law. This is a lawyer, one who was skilled in the law of Jewish tradition. So he is one who knew the prophets. He knew uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books, backwards and forward and he had combed through them and his entire obligation to society and Jewish culture and to the Jewish faith was to make sure that these things were what they were supposed to be, that he maintained integrity for this. So this lawyer had very much scrutinized the word of God. So this lawyer asked Jesus, we'll hit a couple of high points here, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A great question. If you're here and you don't have a faith or not a faith in Jesus, We're thankful for you. We want this to be a community where we learn together. And he asked the important question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life is more than just what happens to me after I die, but that was very much synonymous in that day for enter the kingdom of God. What do I need to do to have an assurance of faith here and a benefit of faith in eternal life when I die? And Jesus replied to him, answered a question with a question. Don't you love that? That's how you get people, question with a question. I don't think I'm very smart. I just ask questions when people ask me questions. What's written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus turns it back around on the lawyer. And the lawyer tells him what? He gives him what Jesus taught earlier in Mark 12, is the greatest commandment. It's the combination of these two ancient teachings that were the backbone of Judaism, that you could hang the whole law on. It's this concept of having a heavy burden and going, where can I let this thing down? You can rest it there. So all of the commandments hang on, one, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. And Jesus introduces soul. Everybody needs a little soul, right? So all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength to love the Lord your God. That comes from Deuteronomy 6. The Shema is uh, the Hebrew root there, Uh, to hear. Oh, hear, oh, hear, Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And that is a prayer that Jews would pray every day when they woke up. If you've done a child dedication here, I've been grateful to be a part of several of those child dedications and to lead you through dedicating your children to the Lord. Looking at friends out here who have had babies when I've led in those services. We pray that for families, that as you've received these things from God, that you would pass them on to your children and to your children. So in the Jewish faith was this integral idea, and the right idea, that you need to love God with everything you've got. No idols, 
nothing on the side, a full devotion to God, that would be expressed in all of your faculties, your mind with your intellect that you would seek God, and your heart with your empathy and your compassion that you would seek God, and your soul, the depth of who you are, the seat of everything, that you would seek God, and in your strength, things that you do when you get up and go, are you going towards God? And the second, like it, to love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19. Jesus taught that in Mark 12, and we see this affirmed here by this guy in Luke 10, and Jesus says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have done that perfectly? How many of you have always, always prioritized God? Never looked to another idol You've never put something in the seat that God should have an authority in your life. You've never pursued unholy things or even just not holy things, over holy things. How many of you, let's go to neighbor, have not been a perfect neighbor? I don't even mean your literal, physical, geographical neighbor, although that is also your neighbor. But I mean the people that are around you. Have you prioritized yourself over them? Well, I would dare say yes. That's the human condition. And the lawyer knows that, and he feels the sting here. So desiring to justify himself, I love that, how honest scripture is, that the lawyer would want to justify himself, make himself right in the eyes of Jesus, make himself right in the eyes of God, make himself right in the crowd that just heard him get roasted, essentially, by Jesus. The lawyer says, who, then, is my neighbor? Who, then, is my neighbor? And Jesus goes into a story. Here's some high points. One, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is where we find this fictitious story that Jesus uses to drive home a very important point. Jerusalem to Jericho was a road that many would be familiar with. It would be like if I said, yes, as one person was going from uh, I-55 north in Jackson to Canton, you'd be like, oh yeah, okay, I got it. But down really implies the geography here that it was a very steep decline. I've never been to Israel, but people that I know that have gone and things that I've read have said that this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was very windy, so much so that even now, when it's been paved and elevated and all that kind of stuff, that buses still don't take it at nighttime most of the time because they're afraid they're gonna go over the edge. A very dangerous road. And in the place where this fictitious, but very based on things that would happen in the culture at the time, Robbery occurred, it most likely happened in this area called the Pass of Blood. So many people got jumped here that they referred to it as the Pass of Blood. So everyone would understand where this was going on. And they left this man half dead. I just left half dead in there for me because I love it. I love that the Bible, like divinely inspired, but it's got personality, which I just love. Keeps me engaged, keep you engaged too. But the half dead, it's this concept that this guy is not all the way dead. I think about the Princess Bride, right? In Digging Montoya, he takes Wesley to Humperdinck. And, you know, some people think the best line of the movie is in Digging Montoya. Oh, my name is in Digging Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. That kind of thing. I think the best line is what happens here whenever he goes and he takes Wesley to Humperdinck and he says, hey, this guy is dead and we need him to be alive because he's got to go and do this thing. And Humperdinck looks back at him and he says, well, so much you know about death. He's not actually dead. He's just mostly dead. So half dead is somewhere around mostly dead. But we see this. It's a picture that we all get. It's a guy strewn out on the road. Clothes ripped off, dried blood, teeth kicked in. I mean, bad picture. 
and something that in the ancient society they all would have experienced. These Jews would have gone often from wherever they were into Jerusalem for these pilgrimages and uh, for the religious feasts and festivals of the day. So travel was very dangerous and everyone who heard this story would know that could be me. I could be that man in the ditch. I could be that man who was left half dead. And then we have three people enter the scene. And the Semitic tradition, the Jewish tradition was threefold storytelling. We tell stories in threes too in our culture often, but it got its root here. We see a priest. The priest is the one who does the religious work in the temple. He takes the sacrifices. They would be the ones who would help people atone from their sins through Levitical law. The Levite, the next party here, is the one who would help kind of keep order in the temple. They were like worship leaders in the temple. They were also like the police in the temple. If anyone went beyond an area that they were supposed to for whatever their ethnic or whatever their uh, cleansing ritual deficiencies were, they would keep people in and out of certain sections. They would also receive the money. So we see the priest and the Levite, they are the religious establishment of the day. The people who should know, the people who should help, the people who should see a need and meet a need. They've got all the resources, all the training, all the policy, and they pass by. The picture there is fascinating. It's that they passed on by, that they crossed the road to get out of the way. Now, many reasons they could have done that. We'll get to some of them later. But then enters the Samaritan. That's the twist. As I've read on this and and encountered this text in my own life, It's fascinating because these Jews probably thought that Jesus was going to use this as an anti-religious establishment teaching to say, ah, yes, the people that live in the ivory towers, they've got it wrong, but the real Jews, the salt of the earth, we are going to get it right. And instead, he goes to a Samaritan. Samaritans. If you've been around church for any period of time, you probably have some context for this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page together and maybe help draw some depth for some of you that have got Samaritan experience. We see the Samaritans are people that are created in the 700s BC whenever Assyria took some people out of Israel, the northern kingdom, and put other people in. Some Jews remained ethnically pure and religiously pure. Let me just say that. Like in Judaism, you'll find this. It's a beautiful arc of people invited into the family of God. Judaism is not about race as much as it's about right faith. So we see multiple people being brought in, but their ethnic thing brought gods and idolatry with them. So we see these people that think that they've got their own version of the Bible. They would accept the first five books, but they would reject the prophets, reject the Jewish writings. They worshiped in a different place. They didn't worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They worshiped at their own temple on a different mountain because they believed that that was the place that they were to worship. So we see idolatry in them and we see a lack of integrity in the religious expression of the day. So the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Nehemiah is a book of the Bible that's meant a lot to the life of our church, particularly a few years ago. Some of you were here when we walked through that thinking about how to be faithful to the thing that God's given us right in front of us to do. We see that there are several parties that oppose Nehemiah in the rebuilding of the wall, the city, and the temple. And one of those were Samaritans. So they had been set against Jewish people and Judaism for a very, very, very long time. And what's fascinating to see is that the hero here is the Samaritan. It's the other, the one who's a step out, who's got a little bit less, and he steps in. What I want to show you today in the balance of our time are four R's that we see in the Good Samaritan. 
Four R's. The first is religion, a religious expression. These are our dealings. How do we deal with religious and religious expression in light of this context? Why does Jesus use these particular people in this particular example? Well, we see this, that the Pharisee had the religion wrong. Like this Pharisee might have only perhaps been worshiping the one God, but most Samaritans also worshiped idols, other deities of the land. This person was not a person who we would say had their faith right. But the Samaritan was the one who was willing to step in and to serve. The Samaritan was the one who would see a need and meet a need. And what we find in the story of the Good Samaritan, I think we often find in society today, and it's burdensome to me, and I hope it's also burdensome to you, is that often we see the righteous person, we see the unrighteous person doing the righteous thing. The person who is not right with God, the person whose faith was not together, who did not have a good perspective. We see them doing the thing that we would say, that's the right thing to do. The very thing that the righteous person, the person who does have faith, the person who does have a robust life, the person who does know what they're called to do, and they pass on by to the other side. We see the unrighteous person doing the righteous thing, the very thing the righteous person is expected to do. And let me ask you guys this. Would you with me expand your horizon a little bit today? Everyone's going to think about this in light of Roe v. Wade, which indeed does have implications for our society, whether you're on one side or the other side. It's a different day today than it was on Friday. But regardless of that, let's think about all the need we see in the world across socioeconomic status. I know plenty of rich people that need help. (laughs) I know plenty of people of all colors who need love and compassion and care. So let's take our blinders off today and go big and think about the world that we live in. Very complicated. Where do we see people that don't know the Lord advocating for the right thing? Not just right in policy, but right to where we could see things restored and whole and have integrity. If you're like me, you've done a little bit of reading and you know that the church in the first century, it decried infanticide, the killing of babies. It advanced the rights of women. The reason that we have universities and hospitals, it's really because of the church. But have we kept up the pace in 2022? Or is there more for us to do? Could we better love our neighbor? Could our religious expression, perhaps, our commitment to policy and position over people, could that be holding us back? Maybe so. Race. Now, in the three-minute slot that a white guy has up here, we're not going to figure race out. But I want to tell you that race and faith across race is so important to our Lord that he would weave it into this story about neighboring. And here's what we find, is this is not a story about the right race helping the wrong race. This is about someone who is out of town, would be oppressed in that part of the world, would have less in that part of the world, doing more to help someone in need. The racial animosity that would have been felt by the Jews there towards the Samaritan. They would have felt something in their bones 
about the fact that this other person would help take care of one of their people. And Jesus speaks to that. There's a book that I read a few weeks ago that I love. It's written by a guy that's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, Isaac Adams. It's called Talking About Race. Particularly if you look like me, I would recommend this book to you. It is a parable in its own way. Isaac was a pastor in Washington, D.C. Before he moved to Birmingham, he pastors at a church called Iron City. Iron City is a church that some people that used to go to Fawner Church that chased the greener pastures of Birmingham, Alabama. I don't know what it is about Birmingham, but I lose all my friends in Birmingham. Young people, stay here. Let's be my friend. We need to fix Jackson. We see Isaac write in this uh, a beautiful line about race. So I'm going to defer to an authority here. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan in which the religious folk walk past the broken man. Now imagine if the religious intended to stop and help the man, but first they argued with each other about why the man needed help. The priest says, well, I think his suffering is his fault. And the Levite responds, well, I think it was the system that beat him down. And back and forth they go. And all the while, the broken man says, hey guys, still bleeding over here. Though we may be having fruitful debate about a matter or three with someone, we should realize that while we're debating, our neighbor still might very well be on the side of the road, bleeding. In other words, our neighbors are not mere conversation points. They're people to love. You might think that a local community looks the way it does for one reason. A fellow church member might think that it looks that way for a different reason. But if you could both agree that it needs help, could you find a common solution and work to implement it? Well, the answer is yes, unless you spend most of your time arguing with one another. Racial discussions shouldn't become distractions from helping our neighbors. They should be means for us to learn how to better love them. That read me like a book. And again, I'm telling you, there are people that I know that are of all colors, all colors, that need compassion, love, service, friendship. But what I want to say, especially if you look like me today, is that we cannot turn a blind eye to history and see that our country has been bad to some people. Let that sit with you. As we transition to rule keeping, we see here that the priest and the Levite were so committed to keeping the rules, to following the law, to the letter, that they missed it. Now, again, people have cut this passage apart so many times. Why did the priest and the Levite not stop? They knew God. They knew that God had commanded them to have a faith that was full and a faith that loved others well, to serve your neighbor, to love your neighbor, even to love your enemy, also mentioned in Leviticus 19. How could these people then pass right on by? Well, some people have supposed that it's because if they touched a dead body, say, no, if this guy was dead, mostly dead, half dead, But if they saw this dead body and they touched it, then they would have to undergo purification rituals before they could enter the temple again and perform their things. In other words, it was going to be complicated for them to take the time. They didn't want to sin, and in so doing, what did they do? They sinned. Don't you see that the law is a trap? I heard a pastor that I love say, the law is a way of life, but it's not the way to life. The law can only do so much for us. Commandments are complex. Edicts are easy to mess up. What can we do? Who can we turn to? How do we find freedom from law keeping? 
we see this, that in an attempt to keep the law, the law betrayed them. In their betrayal of the law, we see that the law betrays us because the law can't save you. Let's break this down, right? No amount of good things you do can make you shiny enough to earn God's love. You will mess something up. God knows I have. And this is what we see in the priest and in the Levite. They're the people who knew right, but they didn't do right. They're the people who had a quiet time, but they couldn't find the time. Could that be us? Not just in cases of injustice, but in good old-fashioned neighbor love, where we would look to one another and we would see and say, I see you and I love you and I want to live my life to serve you. The last R, responsibility. Responsibility. Who are we obligated to serve? What's our responsibility? Who's God called us to? Who's God called you to? All great questions. And we see the lawyer here ask a very different question. Who's my neighbor? Now, who's my neighbor sounds great because it's like, hey, Jesus, point of clarification. Sounds like a lawyer to me. Hey, Jesus, point of clarification. Uh, who? Help me. A lot of people out there want to make sure I get it right. Who? And the lawyer was looking for how little he could do. If you're like me, that's it. I think, okay, like, do I really have to love this person? Do I really need to stop and inconvenience myself? Do I really have to take the time to do this? Oh, so much time. What we see is, is that the lawyer asked how little he could get away with, but Jesus responded with how much there possibly is to do. This man just happened to be going along the road. That's the language Jesus used. Happened, happened, happened. These people were in their path. And what we find is Jesus says, hey, if they're in your path, then they're in your path. And the lawyer didn't know what to do with that. But if you're like me, you see this and you think, Daniel, that is a lot. Like in my path, everybody's in my path. There's so much brokenness. Don't you know the world that I live in? And I do. But that doesn't change the question. This is the ultimate question here that I've been trying to ponder. What are you giving yourself to in your limited time? Is your life fully integrated, fully integrated, right? Do the parts of your life make up something that's intact and whole? Are you intentionally applying your all-encompassing love for God? Remember, heart, let me do this anatomically correctly, heart, soul, where's your soul? Not important, mind, strength and an all-directional love for your neighbor, to love in every direction, complicated. I saw this a couple of weeks ago, and it helped me kind of think about this. This is a concept that there's a circle of being that we all have, a circle of relating that we all have, and a circle of doing that we all have. This circle of being has you in the middle, and then a couple of areas that you are, almost said areas that you be a spiritual area, right, that you would foster that deep faith, a physical area that you would recognize that God's given you a body and that it's important for you to use it and to care for it, an emotional you, 
Very important to foster a spiritual, emotional life. Pete Scazzera, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. If you haven't read that, recommend 10 out of 10. An intellectual that you would pursue the Lord and pursue things with your mind. The circle of being followed by the circle of relating that kind of are wrung out as you help, after you get done neighboring yourself, you neighbor other people. Your marital relationships for some of us in the room, your social relationships, the people that are around you, and then your parental relationships, either your parents or people that you parent, circle of relating. Feels like one more thing that I'm getting wrong. Ah, yep. This, besides the order of the slides, you have a circle of doing, so it's who you are. It's being and relating and doing in your life that you would have vocational responsibilities and obligations, that you would neighbor well there and that your faith would show up at work, that you would have a vocational neighboring, the people that you play with and that you spend time with in your recreation, and then financial doing. That God's created us not to be containers, to hoard and amass things for ourselves, but to be conduits of blessing, to take blessing from one thing to another as we see God as one who has blessed us. Being, relating, and doing is all very complicated. It's all very complicated. This picture that I did not attain permission for is my wife's leg. Carly did something to her leg, and we don't know what it is. We got MRI on Tuesday and our doctor's appointment on Wednesday, so we'll see what happens. But she's been relatively immobile, not able to bear much weight on that one leg. And I have one child. Some of you that have multiple children, I pray for you every day. I don't know how you do it. But I have one child, and she, like any good two-year-old, is doing the complete opposite of what we've asked her to do. So it has been almost a disaster in my house for the last two days. Like, please don't touch your mom's leg. Literally every muscle in her body towards touching her mom's leg. It's as Paul, when he wrote in Romans 8, you know, I don't do the thing that I want to do, I do the very thing I don't want to, then like, he might have been two. I don't know, but that's the story for us. But in uh, trying to do well maritally, to love my closest neighbor, my wife, prioritize her, serve her, help bear her burden when she can't walk, literally, I have not done well in my parental relating I told Stella, our daughter, when she wouldn't stop pushing her mom's leg, I asked her, do you want to go outside and live in the woods with those deer? So when Stella goes to therapy in 30 years, it's going to be my fault. But this is what we see is that it's hard to get everything right. So hard. And if you're sitting here and you're like me and you think, Daniel, this is a great word for someone who doesn't live in the real world, then I would say to you that Jesus Christ knows that that's a word for you and you live in this world. I'm gonna invite the band back up and invite you guys to stand with me as we close the service. And I want us to look at this passage together in Galatians 6. Yes, if you'd stand, that'd be great. Daniel Hicks is trying to take care of me. Thanks, brother, I appreciate you. To bear one another's burdens and to so fulfill the law of Christ. It's fascinating that we get this in the summary and the, the landing the plane at the book of Galatians that to fulfill the law of Christ would be for us to bear one another's burdens. Now, what does that mean, to bear someone's burden? It's to see someone in need. Again, this does not have to be a grand socioeconomic need or a grand physical need, but I'll tell you, it might be. 
It could be a need for compassion, a need for a friend, a need for listening, a need for understanding. To love every neighbor as you would love yourself. And in so doing that, there's something beautiful that happens. We look like Jesus to the world around us. Again, it doesn't have to be grand. It can be very, very small. I would say that the small steps are probably the ones that most of us need to take. But God might be leading you to something significant, that you could love your neighbor as yourself even better as an expressed of the deep faith you want to have that manifests itself in every way even better. But we know this, that this is hard to do. And praise God, there's only been one that could do that that Christ would bear our burden, that he would see us in our sin and our brokenness, and that he would be like that Samaritan going down the road, that he would love an enemy, that's us, and that he would care for us, prepare a place for us, bring us healing, restore us, lavish abundant grace on us. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yes, it's love your neighbor and do good, but it's see that Jesus Christ was the greatest neighbor, the truer and greater neighbor who saw you. And although he had no obligation to you, that he died so that we could be with him and so that we could neighbor one another. So if you're like me and you sit here and you feel guilt, there's so much I'm not getting right. Look to Jesus and see let the motivator be grace that he calls us to follow him freely in his way. We don't have to get it right all the time, praise God, because we just won't. But that as we want to be more like him, we would do likewise. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you, and I am grateful for this church, for every man and woman and child. Lord, different walks of life, different depths of faith, but you call us to the same thing, to love you with everything that we are and to love our neighbor with everything that we are. Lord, bearing a burden often means inconveniencing ourselves and we're so bad at it. Lord, I'd ask how much of a burden really is it if it's not much of a burden to us in the first place. So Lord, would you stir us towards deeper action, towards more faithfulness, towards another step to love our neighbor as ourselves, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. But Lord, we couldn't keep the law perfectly. Only you could. And that's why you did. And that's why you died. So Lord, remove any sense of obligation from us. Lord, would we just see you and would we love you and would that change the way we love others? Lord, help us follow you freely and fully. Lord, for these tithes and offerings, God, I'm grateful. As our ushers come forward, God, that you take this money, Lord, and you put it into your kingdom. God, we are conduits and not containers. And the biblical command of the tithe and the offering, it helps us love our neighbor better. So Lord, would you receive these and would you bless us? We ask these things in your great name.